Welcome back to the LFDC podcast. My name is Pastor Jesse Smout. This week in Sunday School, we discussed Polycarp and more of the martyrdom that the early church faced in the second century. We hope you're blessed. All right, church history. We are officially starting. So we are going to be talking about Polycarp. We talked about Ignatius last week. Polycarp was born in 69 AD. He was younger than Ignatius by quite a bit, but he and um, John, or he and Ignatius were disciples of John, the beloved, right? And so he was from Smyrna, and he, he ended up being the pastor or bishop, as they call, of Smyrna, which we know to be interchangeable. He did die in February of 155 AD, and he also wrote a short epistle to the church of Philippi, um, which you can still look into to this day. It's not very long. Uh, you can listen to it on YouTube. It's only about 15 minutes where they read it. That's what I did. Uh, I did not pull anything for this church history um, segment today from that letter because we know it's not biblical. It's just informational church history. It has nothing to do with the Bible because we know that it wasn't added to the Bible. And we believe God's sovereign over that. All right, so the next slide here, uh, we still have the Pliny or Pliny and Trajan law. That is still in effect. So we talked about that last week, and that was essentially the law where Trajan, the emperor at the time, said, we're not going to try to seek out Christians to kill them, but if, a, if one of our people accuses a Christian of being a Christian, we will ask them to recant and to curse Christ and praise the emperor and burn incense to the emperor, and if they refuse to do that, then we will punish them. But the Roman Empire was not actively seeking to kill Christians, but heaven forbid if a Christian were to uh, take off a pagan, the pagan would accuse them of being a Christian, that Christian would likely be killed. All right, so keep that in mind. That's why Christians were very to themselves. They hung out together, they broke bread together, because if you got too close to a pagan, there was a good chance you were going to die. It's the same today, but it's a spiritual death. Several Christians in Smyrna were executed when they refused to worship other gods. So Smyrna became kind of this, uh, this ground of a lot of Christianity, and so Christians began being executed at a pretty high rate. Um, a witness authored, and this is from the witness, resting in Christ, they scorned uh, the pains of this world. So saying they, they put up and tolerated and went through the worst of the pains in the entire world, resting in Christ. You know, we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 10, right, Cecilia, I believe, verse 9. Um, I would much more gladly boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. People think, oh, the power of Christ, that means I'm going to go out and perform signs, wonders, miracles. That's part of power, but the ultimate power is being able to die and rest in Christ in that. So, did you raise your hand, Steve? No? Okay. Um, so, uh, next part we want to talk about is Germanicus. Uh, he was an older Christian. I only did some brief things here. He was an older Christian. He refused to recant of Jesus Christ. Um, and he, he said, I refuse to recant Christ in a world in which there is so much injustice, saying that you guys are being unjust and intolerable to the Christian religion. I would rather die and go be with Christ than continue living in this empire. This caused the mob to shout death to atheists, 
Now, atheists in this day were not no-God believers. They were Christian. Christians were the atheists. Why? Because their God was invisible. Pagans made up idols, made up images, had statues, had all sorts of things, and they actually idolized, you know, this is my little portion, my gold pagan idol. This is my portion of my God, and this is part of him. So Christians were atheists because they didn't mark up any bearings, any images. They didn't, they didn't have a God that was in their bedroom. They were atheists because they were like, they just made up a God. It's a fake God in heaven that they talk about. And so they shouted death to the atheists, which were Christians, bring out Polycarp. So the, the mob, the pagan mob within Smyrna was becoming so irate at the Christians who were continually refusing to recant of Jesus Christ that they were actually getting worse. They're like, okay, that's it. Bring out Polycarp next. Like, we know he's their pastor. Bring him out. We're going to kill this entire church because we're tired of them. Um, and so Polycarp trusted his sheep, actually. So he's one of the few people who actually hid himself away um, with one of his uh, church members. And he hid himself away. But about a week later, it might have been a little less, like five or six days later, he was discovered again by a pagan. And they told the authorities, Polycarp is here. Go get him. And so he actually thought to himself, uh, this must be the Father's will for my life because they found me again. So he just waited for the authorities to come, uh, knowing he would die. Once received, Polycarp refused to recant, and they shouted out with the atheists. And so once again, the mob, because Polycarp refused to recant Jesus Christ, they said, out with the atheists, continue to kill the atheists. And Polycarp responded by pointing back to them and said, yes, out with the atheists. And so he actually said, no, you guys are the atheists. Um, and he once again was asked to recant. And what was his reply? A beautiful reply that I have quoted here. For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. Talking about God or Jesus Christ. How could I curse my king who saved me? So he, he was older um, than a lot of other martyrs when he was killed. So this is 155 A.D. So they threatened to burn him alive. They said, we will burn you alive, Polycarp. Recant Jesus Christ. He responded, this fire would only last for a moment, whereas eternal fire would never go out. And once tied up and ready to be martyred, he once again, he prayed out to God and said, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I have a share in the cup of Christ. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. Could you imagine, I, I like to use Jarrell, I don't know why. Could you imagine they tie up Jarrell and they're going to burn him at the stake because he refused to recant Christ, and the last thing he did was pray this prayer. Thank you that you deem me worthy of this moment. You know, in America, we like to get up on our pedestal and say, thank you, Lord, for this moment. I have 5,000 church members. For your glory, God. Martyrs oftentimes viewed martyrdom as the the most honorable, worthiest thing. It was like the most beautiful thing because they were deemed worthy enough to be killed like Christ was killed. Not in the sense that they want to idolize themselves, but they thought that was such a, a humble blessing. Right? Now we're like, we get, a, we get a humble blessing and we're like, thank you, Lord, for the stimulus check. You know, our blessings are a little different than theirs. So I like looking at church history, but it is very convicting. We're not even in the Bible that we're talking about early Christianity, and I'm like, oh my gosh, 
they've got so much on us in America, especially. Hey, Jesse? Yeah. Um, I mean, the Chinese looked at their emperor as God. Yes. Okay. And it was an honor to go out and fight and die for yes. their emperor. And it's pretty much the same thing right here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and what, <clears throat> in, during World War II, um, that was the biggest, one of the biggest concerns for the American, or the Allies, the uh, fighting the Japanese, because they were so radical yeah. that they would actually sacrifice themselves. Itself, they would yeah. uh, have grenades tied to themselves and run on out, knowing that they're doing it for their God, mm -hmm. okay, and so. Exactly, 100%. I mean, you look at other religions, you look at uh, Muslims and, and terrorists who do it in the name of their God, who the 9-11 towers and everything that happened then uh, was in the name of serving their God. And so, yeah, you get a lot of uh, crazies. And so even outside of Christianity, they would look at these martyrs and think, just recant and then live and then just serve God again. But martyrs didn't view it that way, right? They viewed it as, if I recant, I'm going to burn in hell. That, that is me refusing Christ to, he acknowledged me, he saved me, he loved me, you know? So other religions also have some pretty serious people as well. So with saying that, um, there were some other rumors, and I want to say there were other rumors, uh, because they're not 100% verified, but there's enough people out there that say these things happened that I believe they were likely true. Now, these are pretty miraculous things, so we're going to flip the slide here. Um, so as he waited for the guards to come at the house, he actually ate with them, broke bread with them, gave them the gospel message, and some of them were so burdened um, because he's an older man, he doesn't deserve to die, he's kind, he's genuine, he loves his God. They actually felt so guilty about bringing him in that they became Christians afterward is the story. Um, so they were very uh, uh, they were very frustrated that he was killed. Um, and then when he was burned at the stake, they actually said, uh, there was a writer that said, the fire refused to touch his body. And that's actually a rumor that won't die. So I believe it probably was true that he was on uh, the stake being burnt and it was just skipping over his body and he was still living. Uh, kind of like a uh, furnace situation with Nebuchadnezzar, right? And so they ended up piercing his side to kill him while he was up at the, the stake. Um, and his blood came out so thick, like so quickly and so, so much so that it burned out the fire. The fire just extinguished. And so there was no fire. There was just a man dead with a hole in his side. So those are some rumors that I don't, I don't want to say they're 100% true. But there, there are enough people out there saying that these things absolutely happened that I think you know, there's, there's some validity to them. And so I did want to briefly mention false martyrs because the church did address false martyrdom. He believed, the, the Christian church believed that Christ would strengthen those who were chosen to be martyred. Uh, but if you willfully went up to the Roman Empire, the Roman guard, and said, I want to be martyred, or I'm a Christian, then Christ would forsake you. That was their teaching at that time. So you were not allowed to go pursue being martyred for your own glory, because they thought it was a selfish ambition. But if you were deemed lucky enough to be accused and be martyred without choosing to do that, but willfully walking into it, then Christ chose you, and it was a great blessing. 
All right, so that's Polycarp. There's much more you can get into with Polycarp, and we might a little in the future here and there. But Polycarp, the biggest things to know, Bishop of Smyrna, uh, one of Ignatius's letters was written to Polycarp. They were co, uh, they were essentially iron sharpens iron. They were brothers, in a sense, uh, of Christ. They were disciples of John, the beloved. And so they were the next in line, right after John. And John wrote some pretty good stuff, as we know. And so Polycarp was impressive. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. He's one of the first three apostolic fathers. We talked briefly last week. So we have Ignatius and Polycarp that we've covered and yet to cover one more. We are going to briefly talk about the next emperor that was pretty important when it comes to martyrdom in Christianity and early church persecution. Marcus Aurelius, emperor in 161 AD, possessed what they called an enlightened mind. He left behind a a book of writings in which he, he called it Meditations. So this emperor actually has literature you can read to this day that he left behind. So uh, this is a quote from his, I don't want to call it a book, but his letter. Think constantly, both as a Roman and as a man, to do the task before you with perfect and simple dignity and with kindness, freedom, and justice. Try to forget everything else, and you will be able to do so if you undertake every action in your life as if it were the last, leaving aside all negligence and the opposition of passion to the dictates of reason, and leaving aside also all hypocrisy and rebelliousness um, against your own lot. So you would think someone who had these an enlightened mind and was leaving behind meditations and was very self-reflective and self-critiquing and trying to grow and be kind and be just and be and be free and be Without hypocrisy, you think you would be peaceful to Christians. However, that is not the case. Um, in meditations, he praises the souls of Christians who are ready to abandon their bodies when the time comes rather than cling to life. He actually praised Christians that they were so willing to just give up their flesh for the sake of their Christ. He, he admired that. But he then goes on to say that this attitude is only praiseworthy when it is the outcome of reason and not obstinacy, which is uh, that... I think I typoed it. Uh, it's the just refusing. It's being a, um, why can't I think of the word? Oh, it, it's refusing. It's being, uh, there's a specific word I'm looking for, and I can't find it in my head. It's refusing. Uh, it's, I can't think of the word, so I'm going to have to just use a different word. Essentially, they would refuse to recant Jesus Christ, uh, and he, he thought, because this is not of reason, and they're dying just because they're refusing to recant Christ, that it was dishonorable. So even though he thought it was praiseworthy, he actually went on to say that it's not praiseworthy because they're just doing it out of... Um, obstinance? Yeah, obstinance is the word we have here. I'm trying to think of the other word to use. Um, like I said, I typoed it. Ultimately, he killed them often and hated their stubbornness. Stubborn is actually a word you could use, being stubborn. Oh my gosh, it's in the next line. That's a good word. So obstinance is being stubborn. So he actually said Christians were praiseworthy, except they were dying just because they were stubborn. Right? So obstinacy is, is being stubborn. That's a good word to use. That's not the word I was thinking of, but it's a good word to use. So the persecution rages on. Um, you've got Felicidia, uh, Felicidius. I struggle with some of these names. Uh, this was a... I don't know why when I came across this person, I just thought of Michelle, even though she doesn't have seven sons. Um, but this woman, 
She had seven sons, and she was a consecrated widow. So she decided, I don't want to remarry. I want to give myself to Jesus Christ and to the church to serve the church. Um, so she actually worked for the church. And because in those days, if you didn't have a husband, making a living as a widow was very hard. And that's why the Word of God often talks about taking care of the widows. Because the culture was very different, very, very different than we have today. And so she actually consecrated herself. She probably talked to the elders of the church in Smyrna, um, with Polycarp being one of them, and said, hey, I, I want to dedicate myself to the church and to Jesus Christ and the teachings of the disciples or the apostolic fathers, the bishops. And so she actually worked for the church and lived by the church. So they actually compensated her so she was able to live and not have a husband and not go get a job, but she served the church. Her reputation was very well uh, within the Christian community, and pagan priests accused her. And remember, when you're accused, that's when the Roman guards bring you in. So you've got this single, widowed, consecrated wife, or not wife, widow uh, woman who serves the church. And pagan priests recognize that she was not high up in the church per se, but that she was valiant in her effort toward Christ. And she was a genuine, genuine Christian. And so the pagan priest accused her. Um, and then the Roman guards brought her in. And they bribed her and said, please, recant of your Messiah. And if you do, we'll give you a, a nice life. Um, they actually bribed her to recant of Christ rather than threatening her. When she refused the bribe, they then threatened her to death and said, we'll kill you. Assuming because she had seven sons, she would recant. She responded with this, while I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me in my death, I shall defeat you all the more. I mean, I just think that's powerful to be able to say, I'm defeating you right now, but if you kill me, I defeat you even more. That's really powerful stuff. Um, so she encouraged her seven sons to stay strong. And uh, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, ordered that they each be executed in varying places of the city as to appease a god. So they murdered her. They went to the seven sons. All seven sons refused to recant, and they murdered all seven sons, and they killed them in different places within the city as to display as an example. I almost cried. Wow. Like, this is brutal. Like, they kill her. They go get her seven sons. And I don't know their ages, but the fact that they're still with her means they're young. I mean, I, I pictured like Zeke and Kalel's, right? They're, I mean, roughly, I mean, you might have younger up to older. They go get her seven sons, and they all said, we as our mother are strong in the Lord, we'd rather die. And so they kill all seven in varying places of the city. That's brutal stuff, brutal stuff, you guys. Um, and so she and her seven sons live on to this day as a very valiant martyrs. So we have the end of the second century um, as far as martyrdom goes, which is mostly what we've been focusing on for the last few weeks, it feels like. Uh, you've got Marcus Aurelius. He died in about 180 and was succeeded by Commodus. They actually ruled jointly for eight years before Marcus Aurelius died. He wasn't overly, quote-unquote, Christian killing, uh, but there, that was due to a civil war at the time, so Christians kind of took the back burner. So persecuting killing... And executing Christians was more of like a primary focus when they had nothing better to do, unfortunately. But when they had other things that were pressing the Roman guard, Roman Empire, and other issues to resolve and, and other fights to pick, as you will, um, they wouldn't kill Christians as often because, like, hey, I know you accused this Christian, but we're busy. Our Roman guards are doing something else. So in 193 AD, um, Septimius Servus became emperor. And all of this time, just keep in mind, the Trajan policy reigned supreme throughout the land. So essentially from 100 AD roughly to 200 AD, the Trajan 
law of the land, which, as we discussed, was the idea that we won't just pursue Christians to kill them, but if a pagan or a Gentile or a Roman citizen comes up and accuses someone of being a Christian, they have to recant. If they don't recant and they're stubborn, we kill them. That was the law of the land for 100 years. Could you imagine? None of us would want worldly jobs. We'd all be like, no, I don't want a worldly job because if I take off the person under me, they're going <laughs> to accuse me of being a Christian, and I'm likely going to die, right? So, but the Christians were brave. They, they went out and lived their lives, and they continued in um, being disciples, and that's why they're radical. Uh, you look at this, and I, I do want to talk briefly, just real briefly. This isn't in my notes about the early church. I know we like to look at the early church and even some of Acts and say they, they went and they broke bread in their homes and they broke bread in their homes and they broke bread in their homes and we have to have house churches. We, when we do that, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with house churches. I think house churches, when done right and done properly, are a beautiful thing. Um, you know, I, I do. But they weren't always house churches because you look in Acts and when they would save thousands, how are you going to have thousands meet in the house? They met wherever the group of people was gathering could, right? So when they say met in houses, it was usually small groups within just the church in that city. The church was the entire city of Christians. So uh, you guys know Isaac. He always had this vision of uniting Christians in a city to be under one banner. And it would be like uh, the Church of Ogden. And we'd all have the same banner. And yeah, we all have different assemblies and different things we go to and do. But we all have one banner and we unite and... You know, maybe we find out um, one of my neighbors goes to refuge and we actually break bread once per week and hang out. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. And that's kind of getting back to an earlier church model where they broke bread with one another all the time. That wasn't how they did church. That was just how they lived. They lived with other Christians. They broke bread with other Christians. They fellowshiped together. They hung out together. Why? Because in Jerusalem, the Jews hated them. And they were kicked out of the synagogues on Saturday, so they started meeting together on Sundays to practice their religion. And in the Gentile, the Greco-Roman Empire, the Hellenistic people rejected them, the Romans rejected them, and so they, they didn't have anything to do. The first thing they do, and I, I know we're not to Constantine yet, but as soon as Constantine comes in and says, we're no longer going to kill Christians, Christians are accepted, in fact, Christianity is the religion I want Romans to adhere to, as soon as that happened, what happened? They started building churches. They started building meeting places because they came from Judaism. What did Judaism have? They had temples. They had synagogues. So there's actually nothing wrong with temples or synagogues. There's nothing wrong with church buildings. There's nothing wrong with having a beautiful, luxurious place for all the Christians to meet together. There's nothing wrong with that. I do think there's some error that Constantine brought into the church, 100%, absolutely. It led to the demise of what I believe uh, to be a beautiful, flourishing church. But guess what? When the government is for you, usually the church tends to die. I really believe that. That's why I'm like, you know, the Biden administration is not good for Christianity, but it is good for Christianity. <laughs> because under persecution, though ours be much less than theirs, we tend to be seeing who are the wheat, who are the tares, who are thriving, who are the ones pursuing Christ through all of this, who are the ones that are, you know, just adhering to the culture. You know, uh, if the Christians in the early first and second century uh, were to adhere to their culture, they would have been rejected by the church. They would have been cast out and said, you can't be of them because they want to kill us. You have to be with us. And it's the same today. Though they don't want to kill us per se, they do want to kill us spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and brainwash us to be like them. 
And we do not want that. We want to be brainwashed by only Jesus Christ, to be more like him and less like ourselves. We want to put to death our flesh. And so I say all this to say there's nothing wrong with house churches, but understand the reason house churches were such a big deal is because, one, they were a disorganized religion, a new religion that didn't have an official place. They didn't have buildings. They, didn't, they were persecuted, killed, persecuted, killed, persecuted, killed, persecuted, killed. So they were the church of a, of a certain city, right? Uh, we talk about Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. They didn't say he was the bishop of living faith in Smyrna. We talked about that with Ignatius, right, of Antioch. Polycarp was the bishop, the pastor, of one of the pastors of the city. You look at the book of Acts, and as the apostles came into cities, before they left, they appointed elders, and the elders would appoint deacons, and then they would move on. And that's why when I came in, I was like, I really want a plurality of elders, because scripturally, that's what I see. Every time the apostles went into a city, they appointed elders. You could argue, I would, be, I would actually, I, I could make an argument for this too, you could argue that you appointed, say, four elders, and each elder has an assembly. Um, but the reason that's not what I would do is because then there's less accountability of what those elders are doing on their Sunday morning assemblies. Uh, maybe they meet together Monday through Wednesday and, and talk it out, and they all plan things together and pray together and, and encourage each other and keep each other straight and keep each other according to the word. And then they go different places on Sunday so that there's different varying meeting places. That's possible when you have multiple elders, um, but more likely was that they all met together. Anyway, uh, yes? Uh, I've got a comment here. Uh, I like what you're saying. There's a song that they taught us when I was in grade school. We're looking back in the 40s. It was called Ring Around the Roses. Oh, yeah. Ring Around the Roses. Okay. Pocket full of posies. Okay. You know what? It seemed to us like a nice song. Yeah. We sing it to our little ones, you know. Not since I come a Christian. But yeah. <laughs> I read the history of that out of the Fox Book of Martyrs. Yeah. And what that illustrated was in Rome and the persecution of Christians. They would put him to the stake, and they would march, the candidates, the people, would march around a ring around with posies. Mm -hmm. And while they were set afire, they threw the posies in, ring around the posies, till they all fall down, until those saints yeah. were burnt. The ropes were loose, burnt. They just fell. But you know, mothers and dads thought, you know, that's a beautiful little song for these <laughs> yeah. children. Yeah. But they didn't know the exact meaning of it. Yep. And I ran across that a number of years ago. And you know what? That, that is what's crazy, um, you know, Pastor Ed, is when you're ignorant of something and you become aware of it, you're broken. I don't know if you guys have had that, but you're ignorant of something and you realize, oh my gosh, like this was, this is so wrong. This is so bad. Um, and you're broken and it immediately calls for repentance. You're like, God, please forgive me. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the posture of our heart. And yeah, I did, I did look at this book a little bit more. Um, it's by John Fox with an E, Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
Um, I do recommend it if you want to kind of be aware of, uh, you probably would actually know more than we're gonna go through in Sunday school, but it's a good book. Um, looked at it and I think that's a really strong recommendation by Pastor Ed he made last week is uh, the Fox's <coughs> Book of Martyrs. It just gives you such a an understanding of yeah, maybe we face some things that are challenging today, but we always have to have perspective. We always have to understand, you know, things could be worse, and that's why the Word of God tells us whatever is pure, whatever is uh, of good report, whatever is praiseworthy, meditate on these things, because, you know, we, we've got we to focus on Christ. I, I told my wife even, I said, I just want to focus on Jesus. Like, that's, that's all I want to focus on, because when I focus on Him, Nothing else matters. Like, there are so many things that I want fixed and I could talk to God about, and there's so many things that are wrong. Um, but when I just focus on Christ and, and put all my attention on Him, it really starts to make things better. And so, all of that to say, that's what these martyrs did. <laughs> they rested in Christ and let their flesh be killed. Um, and praise God, because the Word of God tells us to kill our flesh. So, the martyrs were just letting the Romans do it for them. It's a brutal imagery. Uh, it's brutal imagery. So thankfully, God's grace allows us to uh, live out these silly fleshly lives and try to persecute our flesh our own way, in which we pursue holiness and piety. Uh, but that is actually, I'm really trying to get back down so we're done by 1045, but I do want a lot of time for questions, if you guys have any, um, or any comments in regards to this section of history or martyrdom. I'd be happy to try to answer those or discuss those with you. Is Polycarp his last name? Uh, no, I believe it's his first. That's a very interesting name. Do you know his last name? Uh, I don't. Because anywhere you see it, just usually says Polycarp or Smyrna. That's fine. I, I don't even know. Well, I mean, I have internet, so we can we can look at it. when you were talking about the different learning styles, there's an actual test that you can take to find out what your learning style is. I gave one to Bella. Uh, Lynn said there is a test online to see what your learning style is. Even when I type in Polycarp first and last name, I don't see anything. Polycarp was just what was left. I mean, I I don't know, though. St. Polycarp, <laughs> Polycarp of Smyrna, that's all that's coming up. Jarrell, you're awfully quiet. When I go through this, like, you have to understand, like, I'm in the same boat as you guys, like, reading these things, I'm just like, holy guacamole. Um, they're just, they're really hard. They're really hard things to go through. And to, uh, and the fact they added it to their, their liturgy, their worship service, their schedule, um, and said this is part of how we're going to worship God is by reading the stories of martyrs. That's, that's part of their service that they did and part of their worship liturgy was reading stories of brothers and sisters that even perhaps they knew or heard of personally and their martyrdom. I just think that's that's crazy. I mean, could you imagine every single Sunday 
before the sermon started, I said, hey, you know, before we start the sermon where we open the book of Ephesians, I'm going to tell you about one martyr that died here in America last week. And I just did that every week. And then we'd have reason to say, yeah, we're persecuted, but for the glory of God, we valiantly face death. I just think it, it is really enlightening to uh, study church history. I've been studying other parts of church history while studying early church history because I've really been trying to study the Reformation forward as well. And uh, even they uh, went through a lot of different things that were pretty interesting. So I look forward to uh, continuing this, and we have a lot yet to go through. Yeah, Mark? Hey, um, the books of the Bible, um, do you want us to learn say them all or the first? Mark asked if we should say them all or the first. Uh, it's or just a challenge it. to you. I likely won't ever come back to it. It's just a challenge to you. If you so feel um, convinced by what I said that you probably should know them in order, most people in this room probably just need to refresh. I think every person in this room at one point has had them memorized top to bottom. They just, you know, a couple years goes by, three, four years goes by, and we kind of forget, we kind of get the minor prophets mixed up. I'll admit, like I was telling the elders, I said, it's like every two years I have to revisit it because if I don't, then I do lose it. Um, and so it's just one of those things where just refresh yourself and know it. So that way if the teenagers walk up to you and say, you know, hey, I can recite all 66 books of the Bible. You say, great, that's a good thing Christians should do. Uh, Pastor, I was, uh, uh, I was really intrigued by the book that John MacArthur put out. The twelve Jesus chose. Oh yeah. Those disciples. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was so intrigued with it. I liked it. I I ordered that. And I got into the in-depth study of every one of those disciples. And they were all martyred, the twelve, except John on John the Revelator died of an old age, but uh, Andrew, every one of them disciples become missionaries, went into India, uh, Ethiopia, yeah. and they all were killed, somehow martyred, and not accidentally, purposely. Yeah. Some started fabulous churches in India, Ethiopia, and all the conversions, and yet the authorities, you know, martyred them. And, uh, but I like what the Fox Book of Martyrs says. And Fox says in that, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Mm. Even though Christ was on this rock and built this, uh, you know, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall prevail. But the blood of martyrs spread the blood yeah. for Christianity. Yeah. I mean, these martyrs face death. Like, Christ died for me. What an honor to die for him. What an honor. You know? And, and so, to me, to be, like, clinging on to my flesh and my life, I feel like is, I don't know, almost focusing on the wrong things. Like, just so is and um, you know I just view as long as God permits me on this earth I plan on preaching the gospel um, and I, I do believe 
you know, not everyone has the same purpose or call, um, but we all are called to preach the gospel. And that is, uh, you cannot escape that call if you are a Christian, because that is, is a call of every Christian. Um, not every Christian is called to teach or, or pastor or shepherd or, or give an expositional sermon. Not every, not every uh, Christian is called to uh, be a prophet or a, an apostle or whatever you want to say. All these different roles, functions you can give. Um, some people have the gift of hospi- hospitality. Some people have the gift of giving. Um, but all of us are mandated by Christ before he leaves to preach the gospel, to give the good news. And so, you know, the more valiantly we do that, oftentimes the more the world seems to hate us. And the world in those days was very hostile toward opposing views, contrary to their own. And the world still is, just, you know, for our fleshly sake, we don't have to die. At least, not yet, I don't know. Some people do in other countries, we know that. All right, I'm going to give you guys the next nine minutes to go to the restroom, so I'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to study uh, Polycarp and, and some of this early church and, God, the martyrdom that these people faced, and they faced it so valiantly that they would, they would so much more gladly boast in your strength than cling to their own. They willfully walked toward death knowing that they would be sealed to you for eternity. They, they willingly gave up their flesh and bone that their spirit may yet eternally live with you god and just what a beautiful picture father i just pray that i pray that we can understand that these flesh and bones they're not here to give us a good time god and i don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying the nature you created or or going fishing god there's nothing wrong with those things but understanding that my flesh and bones if i'm sealed to the spirit they're just a vessel in which the gospel is to be proclaimed Father, so I just pray that I and everyone in this room, we can use our vessels properly to be true saints, to be true kingdom builders, to be true uh, beautiful feet, God, that we, we may carry the gospel with us wherever we go. Father, so I just thank you and I praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As always, thanks for checking us out. God bless.